If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the the pew back in front of you. But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Here at the outset, I I just want to read the verses that we're going to be talking about in this message. And so we're going to, you can follow along as I read. And then I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to to talk about these verses. So that's kind of the... That's the agenda here. Read it, pray that God would help us to understand it, then try and understand it. Okay, so we're going to be in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 14. So I'm going to read um, as we begin. So I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. So Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we, as we come week after week to your word, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to understand your word. Lord, we confess that any failure to, to understand this rightly is not with a lack of clarity or sufficiency on your word's part, but is our part. We are the ones who need help. We are the ones who err. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would help us to, to understand your word Lord, and, and would your word bear fruit in our lives. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, nowadays, it's often in the news, there's, there's a code of conduct that is, to, that is to set the parameters for any member of any of the National Football League teams. There's a code of conduct. It's in the news a lot. Right? It's, unfortunately, it's often in regards to sexual assault or abuse. But, but the, the point is that there's a code of conduct that is to, to characterize how players of the National Football League are to act. Right? They, they, they're to live within this code of conduct so they don't bring disrepute on their organizations or on the league as a whole. And so there's a code of conduct. If you violate it, you're suspended a couple times. Maybe you're, you're suspended indefinitely, and, and eventually you're, you're out. If you, if you don't abide by this code of conduct, your affiliation with the league is terminated. 
There's a golf tournament going on right now that, that has very specific rules. And, and while you're on the golf course, those rules dictate how you play. So if, if you're in a hazard, and if you don't know, just, just follow me, but, but if you're in a sand trap, which is called a hazard, if your club touches the sand trap before you strike the ball, that's a penalty. That's your code of conduct. If you violate it, you are penalized. I, I use these opening illustrations because in Ephesians chapter 5, in these first 14 verses, Paul gives us a Christian code of conduct. I mean, as it were, th this is how Christians are to live. These are the parameters within which Christians are to live. But unlike the, the NFL code of conduct or the, the PGA Tour rules, this is a code that Christians abide by indefinitely. So it doesn't end when, when we're too old or we can't run as fast as we used to. Right? This code doesn't expire. It's part of who we are as Christians. Christians are made new. They are raised with Jesus. They are new creations and have a new identity. And part of that new identity is living out this code of conduct. And I must make clear that you don't Become a Christian by abiding by a code of conduct. It is the result of becoming a Christian that you abide by this code of conduct. Just, just hear that at the outset. If you think being a Christian is, I just got to be good enough, that's, that's, that's off from the get-go. You can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. That's, that's the gospel message of Christianity. You can't be good enough, but Jesus can and was good enough so that you can be saved, reconciled to God through faith in Jesus who was good enough. It's like you get his grade by faith alone, and you're, you're counted and rewarded for his grade, his performance. So it's not your performance. So, so don't hear me say, if you want to be a Christian, you better do these things. No, if you're a Christian, this is the fruit of who you are. This is how children of the light walk. So in our passage this morning, Paul says Christians are to walk as children of the light. And he's going to use this, this illustration of light and darkness to characterize the walk of Christians. And the points that he makes in, in these verses are, are going to be the, the outline that we're going to follow. So there in verses 1 through 7, Paul first makes the point that light doesn't partner with darkness, or light is incompatible with darkness. They, they, they don't go together. That's, what, that's the point he makes in verses 1 through 7. And then the second point in verses 8 through 14, not only are they incompatible, but, but light exposes darkness. Light exposes darkness, or, or light doesn't partner with darkness. Right, so, so the second point should be light exposes darkness. So, so let's, let's begin there, point one, verses one through seven. Light doesn't partner with darkness, or light is incompatible with darkness. So if you're with us last week, we covered verses one and two. And so, so I'm not going to say much there other than to say that, that as Paul is transitioning, he, it's, a very, it's a moral exhortation. He's calling them to live lives, to live moral lives. He's, he's going to say, here's how you should live. And, and the basis for that is that Christians are called to imitate God and walk in love. So he said, that's the foundation to be imitators of God. So if you're a Christian, you should be an imitator of God and you should walk in love, the love that Christ has displayed by giving himself up on the cross. And so Paul understands the Christian's path to be a path of imitating God and of loving others. And so these verses 1 and 2 kind of hinge from, from what came before, but now also they're the hinge for what comes after in verses 3 and 4. So look there at verses 3 and 4. So be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice, verse 3, but sexual immorality 
And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so in both these verses, in verse 3 and in verse 4, Paul is establishing that there is this code of conduct that's fitting for Christians. And in these verses, he lists things that are not part of that code. Right? So notice at the end of verse 4, he says, these things must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. That's the end of verse 3. So there's something that's proper, that's fitting among the saints, and these that he mentions in verse 3 are not part of what is proper. So maybe your translation at the end of verse 3 says, these are improper for God's holy people, or these things are not, do not becometh saints, or such sins have no place among God's people. His point is that the things that I'm listing, they're not part of the code of conduct. His point is clearly establishing that, that, that these things, sexual morality and all impurity and covetousness, have no place in the lives of Christians. In the lives of Christians, those who have trusted in Jesus, who, who have be, become God's people, have been born again, right? and as they aim to imitate him, there are things that they don't do. There are life trajectories that they are not on anymore. And so the same point is made in verse 4. And he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor or crude joking, which are out of place. So again, it's not fitting. It's out of place. These things that he's mentioning are not part of the code of conduct, which means there is a code of conduct. There are things that are fitting for Christians to, to be found among. And these things are inconsistent with the Christian walk. They're inconsistent with, with what it means to walk as a child of the light. And so what are these specifics? What are these vices that Paul lays out that are not fitting? So, so first, notice there verse 3 Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. This, is, this, this idea is immorality or fornication. Maybe your translation says fornication. Right? But whereas fornication, right, that, that's, that's a very narrow term. Right? What Paul means here, the term he uses here is a broad term. It's much broader than fornication or adultery. This is a Greek word that's called, that, that, is, that is porneia. And it is a broad category. And, and what Paul means specifically when he prohibits sexual morality, is that any sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship must not be named among them. That, that's his category of anything that is any sexual activity outside of the God-ordained context must not even be named among you. And so Paul is saying it's improper for Christians to be characterized by sexual morality. Any illicit sexual activity outside of the God-ordained context of a covenanted husband and wife is prohibited here. Anything. It's a broad category. Human sexuality is a gift of God for a purpose of God, and to go outside of that is immoral. I mean, just it, it helps for us to realize the context here of Ephesus. Right? This was a very, very dark, sexually immoral culture. I mean, if you're shocked by, by the sexual revolution here and now in our culture... Right? The context into which Paul is writing is, is far worse than what we're even experiencing. I mean, I, I won't go into details, but suffice it to say that there was rampant sexual immorality in every Greco-Roman society. That, that's part of who they were, their culture. Part of their religious activity involved rampant sexual immorality. And Paul says, Christian, you must disassociate yourself from that way of life, from sexual immorality. The next thing he lists, the next vice, all impurity. And so in Paul's letters, the, these two are often combined. So in Galatians 5, sexual morality and impurity are listed together as, as works of the flesh, Paul would say in, in, first, in Galatians 5, 19. Or 
in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions impurity and sexual morality as sins that people had repented of. He said, you used to do that, but, but that's not you anymore. You've changed. In other words, sins that people were still engaging in, and Paul says there that, that he would mourn over these. So he's saying, you once were that way, you're impure, but, but since you became a Christian, that changed. Your relationship with impurity changed. And so Paul understands impurity to be closely associated with what he just said as sexual morality. And, and to be impure, to be unclean, it, it's a moral descriptor. Okay, Paul isn't talking about taking a bath. You can't just go home and take a bath and be cleansed like Paul's calling you to be. And this is a moral descriptor. He's talking about being morally impure. And notice he, he doesn't say impurity, he says all impurity. There's no boundary. It's not just sexual impurity, it's all impurity. And then third, the third in this first list is covetousness or, or covetousness. Uh, uh, maybe your translation says greed. And again, I think we see Paul is emphasizing there's a selfish selfish nature that characterizes all of these things. There's a selfish, selfish nature of these sins. And, and Paul, in mentioning greed, shows it's not just your outward actions. All of your outward actions start with, with your heart condition, with, with greed, with selfishness. And Paul intends to show that, that, that the heart is the spring of all these things, which is exactly what Jesus would say. From the heart come these things. It begins in the heart with a desire for, for selfishness. I want what I want. I want no hindrances to getting my way and what I want. And, and that, that desire leads to the outworking, to actions, to activities. And Paul's saying, this must not be among you. That's not part of the code of conduct. So he's saying the, these things, covetousness and impurity and sexual morality, are, are, are inappropriate or are not fitting for the Christian. To live a life characterized by these things is to live a self-satisfying life. And a life filled with these things, with this selfish direction, is a life that is on a trajectory that is not consistent with the way that Christians are called to live. Remember, you're to be an imitator of God and to love sacrificially. If all I'm doing is living for myself, right? that's not the Christian road. These things must not be named among Christians. There must not even be a hint of these, some translations say. These things, this, this way of living, is out of place among Christians, and notice what Paul says, these things must not even be named among you. And when Paul says that these things, these practices should not even be named among God's people, he's saying something much more than that you just can't talk about these things, or you just can't discuss these things. That's not, that's not his point. He is saying that an outsider who observes the daily behavior of Christians should never have an opportunity to name one of these vices as characterizing the life of the Christian. So it's not just don't, don't talk about them, right? That, that's a given. Don't talk about them. But, but he's saying that, that this should not even be even close to, to being able to be charged against you. It's so far out of the code of conduct, your life should be such that, that no one can even charge you with that. It must not even be named, he says. An imitator of God who walks in love does not pursue these things. Their lives are not characterized by these things. And so it seems best to understand Paul as characterizing someone's lifestyle or behavior. So he says, this must not be you. Your lifestyle, your behavior must not be characterized by these things. These things must not be a hallmark feature of who you are. And so, so Paul isn't saying anything about the Christian who fights against these things. Paul isn't saying that the Christian who struggles in these areas is, is, is not okay. Paul isn't talking about that person. He's talking about the person whose life is characterized by these things. And if that's you, right, if your life is characterized by sexual morality or impurity or covetousness, then you're not a child of the light. 
That's the evidence that, that, that you're not on the team. Now, now look there. I'll say more about that. Hold that thought. We're going to say more about that in a second. But look down there at verse 4. So, so he lists this first group of three, this first triad. Now he lists the second group of three at the end of verse 4. And this shifts from the focus on sexual sin to now he focuses to, to sinful speech, which if you remember, he focused on last week at the, at the end of chapter 4. But here in verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And although that first word is simply translated filthiness, the context seems to imply that, that with these next two descriptors, that filthiness it, that's, that's prohibited is a, a filthiness of talk. A dirty or unwholesome talk is what is prohibited. That's why some versions translate that first word, obscenities. There must be no obscene talk. So, so not, let no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking be among you. No filthy talk, no foolish talk, no crude joking. And so the second group, the, this triad of, of things that are prohibited of, of vices, makes the case clear, along with the first, that, that sexuality and speech are two of the most difficult areas for the Christian to thrive in. He's saying, you've got to be on guard against this. Don't let these things be among you. Sexual sin, sexual morality, but also the use of your mouth, the words that you use. And I think that's, that, I think that's instructive for us to recognize I mean, this certainly squares with my experience that these two categories are, are sin that are most common among Christians. We talked about this last week. How hard is it to control your tongue? Man has not yet done it. Right? We, we've gone to the moon, but we haven't controlled this small little thing in our mouth. These are areas that Christians struggle with. And Paul is calling Christians to a new code of conduct, a new life, a life that's distinct from those around them. Paul wants these believers to eliminate any kind of indecent behavior from their lives and every form of filthy talk. Paul would say that these evils are blemishes to their new identity in Christ. That's not who they are anymore. And not only that, these evils are not in accord with their call to be imitators of God. Notice there at the end of verse 4, this is Paul again with his put-off, put-on dynamic. In a similar way as he talked about putting off the old self and putting on the new, here... He prohibits certain types of speeches out of place or not fitting. And then he provides what to put on. He says, don't let these things be among you. They're not fitting. But instead, here's what's fitting to come out of the mouth of Christians, namely thanksgiving. How simple is that? that that's the remedy to unwholesome talk, to, to foolish talk, to obscene talk, to, to be ever giving thanksgiving from your lips. That's the remedy. Paul seems to understand that in the same way that light and darkness can't coexist, I think he's understanding that thanksgiving and obscene talk cannot coexist. And so to, to live in light of the calling to put on the new self is to, to have a, a tongue that is always giving thanks. I think it's fair to say that a mouth that is preoccupied with giving thanks is a mouth that will find no time for filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. Thanksgiving is the remedy for foul mouths and foolish talk. When we're concerned and intentionally pursuing giving thanks, we'll be less likely to use our mouth in these prohibited ways. And, and Christian, let's think about all chapters 1, 2, and 3. You have much to give thanks for. Even if your life now stinks, God has done things for you in Christ that ought always be reason for thanksgiving. You were dead and you're alive. 
You were a rebel, now you're a son. You were a stranger, a foreigner, an alien, now you're a household member. You once were removed from the promise, now you have the spirit of promise. These are things that are true for you, regardless of what your life looks like externally. Those are reasons to give thanks. For the believer, no one and no thing can touch that reality for you. And so give thanks, always. I mean, one application of this passage might be simply learning to give thanks. Practice giving thanks. And I don't mean just before the meal. Right? That's good. How countercultural is it now to stop and recognize that you have received this, this meal from McDonald's as God's provision? Some of you may say that. That doesn't happen. God doesn't provide McDonald's, right? But the, I, the point is, it is right for us to pause and, and tell the world around us, we acknowledge that God gives us gifts, including this food before us, and that, that's part of the way that we can witness in this world. But, but this is much more than that. A way of life. We ought to give thanks. And maybe you're familiar with the song, Count Your Many Blessings. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has done. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. How often we're prone to forget. And so maybe, maybe every morning, maybe this next week, commit the, the Holy Week, the Passion Week. Write down a reason that you're thankful to God for that day. And if you can stop at one, then stop at one. But my guess is once you start going, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep building. Give thanks to Him. And when you're preoccupied with giving thanks, you, your mouth doesn't spew unwholesome talk or filth or obscenities. Meditate on the goodness and kindness of God to you. That's a great way to promote thanksgiving. Paul's point here is that children of the light give thanks. But as we move on, look, look there in verses 3 and 4. And what we've already seen 3 and 4 in verses 3 and 4. Paul's made perfectly clear that there's a, a difference between children of light and children of darkness. And in verse 5 through 7, he makes this case even stronger by saying, it's not just how you live or the current experiences that are different, but it's also the eternal experience. In other words, as Paul continues, and we can't downplay the force of these words, Paul says that those whose lives are characterized by the vices, by the things he's just said must not be among Christians, those who li whose lives are characterized by these things, Paul says, have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I mean, that can't be any clearer. This, this is a heavy charge. Look at verse 5. I mean, it's not me up here saying this. Look at, look at Paul in verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 5. You may be sure of this. I, I mean, the wording is literally, you know this knowing. Right? You know this knowing. So, so some translations say, you may be certain of this, or you may be sure of this. And what are you, you going to be certain of? That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Which means eternal life is not possessed by the person who is sexually immoral or impure or an idolater. The person who is characterized, whose life is defined by these things. His point being, children of light don't live in darkness. They don't dwell there. Now I want us to feel the weight of this. I mean, I want us to recognize the seriousness of a life that's characterized by sin. Right? So, so I want us to feel that weight, but I also want us to recognize what Paul isn't saying. Here, Paul isn't asserting that the believer, any believer, whoever falls in any of these sins is automatically excluded from God's kingdom. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what's envisioned here 
is that the person who's given himself or herself up or given himself or herself over to these things without shame or repentance, whoever has given themselves over to this way of life, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, has, has no claim to salvation. The person who gives himself up to this. And so two things to make perfectly clear from verse 5 is, one, anyone who practices, practices these things, anyone whose life is characterized by these vices has no part or no lot in the kingdom of God. They simply don't. I mean, this is a black and white verse. The person who lives, whose life is characterized by these things, has no part in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what they say about themselves. It doesn't matter what they once said in a church. It doesn't matter if they were ever baptized. If their life is filled with and characterized by these things that Paul says to have no place among the Christians, that person has no lot in the kingdom of God. I mean, that's, that's what Paul says. So, so get that clear. Maybe you have a loved one or a neighbor. They, maybe they need to hear this. You can't just say, well, I'll get right with God later. Right? That's not an option. Right? If, if your life is characterized by these things, you have no part. And so don't deceive yourself into thinking that they're fine when they're not because Paul does not want to give you assurance if it's not there. That's the first thing to make perfectly clear. But at the same time, the second thing to make clear, and I hope you hear this, is that those people are not without hope. And they're not without hope because the gate of repentance stands open always. The gate of repentance is open to that person whose life is filled with these things. A possession of the kingdom is found among those who, in humility, repent and turn from their sin. Forever. Always, as often as it appears. Hope is found in those who turn from sin and trust in Christ. So, so Paul's not saying that it's not that the Christian doesn't struggle with sexual immorality or impurity or idolatry. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying the Christian doesn't struggle with those things. It's that the Christian does struggle with those things. It's that the Christian recognizes the error of his or her ways in pursuing those things. It's that the Christian labors to put off those things, to not do those things. I'm a slave. I, I know what I should do, but I do what I don't want to do. Who's going to help me? That's the Christian. I don't want to do this. And so if, you're, if, you, if you feel like you're enslaved to sexual sin, and if you're still fighting, there's breath in you. That's good news. Take heart in that. It said, if you don't care or couldn't care less, that's when I'm worried for you. Because the Christian recognizes, I don't want to do this. It doesn't mean I, I, I never do it, but there's a desire, at least I don't want to do it. Every true Christian repents of his or her sin eventually. Sure, there are seasons. Sure, there, there's some fuzziness in there, but every true Christian, I'm convinced, repents of his or her sin eventually. And repentance is the door of hope. But in terms of application here, we can't be out of balance between these two points. For us, I think we need, to, need a clear conviction regarding the first. Anyone whose life is characterized by sin, whether sexual morality, impurity, or idolatry, regarding this person, Paul clearly says he or she has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And that's been his point in Ephesians. Children of the light live lives that are characterized by light. What's happened in Christ when someone becomes a Christian, things change. And for one's life, who claims to be a Christian, for there to be no discernible difference, I mean no discernible difference at all, that's a problem. 
for a Christian to have a life filled with, filled with and characterized by ungodliness is to show or evidence that change has not actually taken place. And so verse 6, not only does, does, does this person, do these people not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ, Paul says also that they are awaiting the wrath of God. Look there at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, or on account of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so Paul says, don't be deceived by empty words, by foolish words. And in this context, the empty words that he's talking about would be any words or teachings or advice that promotes clear and obvious sexual sin as a matter of Christian indifference. Those are empty words, Paul says. And so in our current day, I think there's a lot of empty words going around. A lot of empty words, especially surrounding the sexual revolution that we're in the midst of. I mean, the very air that our culture breathes, both definitely outside, but even sometimes inside the church, is simply this. You... Your very identity, who you are, is wrapped up and even defined by your sexual orientation. Right? That's what we're taught. You are your sexual identity. Which means to deny me any sexual freedom is to deny my very personhood. Right? That's the air that we breathe. And do you see how that changes how we interpret this? So if Christians start saying, yes, that's true of you. You are your sexual identity. And whatever your sexual preference is, that, that's, that's part of who you are. Well, who am I to say you, you can't love this person or you can't pursue that desire? Those are empty words, though. Paul says, don't be deceived because it's not true. Christians are deceived when they believe that this particular teaching about sexual identity is true. It's deceptive. So, so when, when Christians are told... You can love whoever you want. That's who God made you to be. God made you that way. God would want you to be happy regardless of who you love. God just wants you to be happy. No parameters, no hindrances, no prohibitions. Just be happy. Follow your sexual desire. Right? When Christians tell that or Christians hear that, that is not true. Has never been and will never be true for the Christian. These are empty words because these are not in accord with how Christians are called to live. In fact, absolute sexual freedom is antithetical to walking as an imitator of God. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived into believing these things because, and here's why, the wrath of God is coming on account of these things. These things, meaning sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness, are the things on account of which the wrath of God is coming. And so Paul is warning these Christians, don't be misled by anyone who encourages, who encourages you in sexual permissiveness. Don't be misled by anyone who, who says that these activities are a matter of indifference. Paul would say that arguments of this kind are empty and devoid of truth because they do not reckon with God's design or plan, but also they don't reckon with God's holy judgment on sin. The fact of the matter is that the wrath of God is coming. And it's the connection Paul makes. The wrath of God is coming upon who? The sons of disobedience. And so these people, these men and women, are not those who commit the occasional acts of disobedience. These people are men and women whose disobedience their lives are characterized by. The disobedience characterizes their life. Their, their lives are, are characterized by rebellion against God. And Paul says the wrath of God comes upon them. Therefore, verse 7, don't become partners with them. Having just stated what's at stake, the clear response for a Christian is to avoid partnering with the sons of disobedience with these things, which 
goes, should go without saying, but Paul isn't saying don't interact with them, right? Because then we, we have to remove ourselves from, from the world or, or go get a, a commune or a, a, a compound somewhere, which is not what we're to do. Right? We're, we're to be in the world, but, but when he says don't partner with them, he's saying don't join with them. Don't be characterized by the things that they are. Don't partner with them. Don't join them in their rebellion. The Christian has been made new. So Paul says don't, don't partner with them. And two points of application here, and I think I have a slide for these, but, but two points briefly to make. First is Paul teaches that Christianity is a religion of distinction. It's a religion of distinction. So to become a Christian is to be different. Something changes. You're not what you once were. I mean, that's the nature, the essence of Christianity. The truths of the gospel and the resulting realities of someone who's been united to Christ by faith, they, they make a difference. So that if I've put my faith in Jesus, I've been united to him in a death like his, so that I've died to my old self, I've died to sin, but I've also been united with him in a resurrection like his. So now I live a different life, a new life, a life that is Marked by my union with Jesus. I imitate God. I pursue righteousness. I pursue holiness. I'm on a different track when I become a Christian. And it's on, it's on display for everyone to see. Christianity is a religion of distinction. And the second thing that we, we can't miss here is the fact that God's wrath is a real thing. It's not just a figment of, of these angry Christians, the fund, fundamentalist Christians' imagination. Right? Paul says God's wrath is coming on behalf of sin or in consequence to sin. And wrath is the right response of a holy God to sin. We can't miss that. God's character is at stake here. So, so if I say, no, 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 God's not a God of wrath, well, I'm actually attacking his holiness. We must not miss the fact that God's wrath is a real thing. And we must not miss that his wrath is coming upon the sons of disobedience. But we must also not miss that among those sons of disobedience, we all once lived. We can't forget that. It's not like, hey, I'm better than you because I found God in it and I'm just better. No, God found me when I was dead in sins and trespasses. And, and so the wrath of God gives us a gospel humility. So, so the wrath of God is rightly aimed at every disobedient son which is everyone, which is all of us. We all have gone astray. But God's grace has found you and made you alive even when you were dead. He's made your friend even when you're an enemy. And so it's not that you don't deserve his wrath. You do. But Jesus took it for you. And so there's a gospel humility for the Christian that God's wrath should, should, should promote. But there's also a gospel hope for the non-Christian. Yes, you deserve God's wrath and it's coming but there's hope for you because Jesus paid the penalty that you deserve so that you might be freed. Jesus paid it all so that you might not have to pay. So there's gospel hope for all who are facing God's wrath. Well, then, then the second point, and this one is more quick. Verses 8 through 14, light exposes darkness. So Paul transitions there to verse 8. He shifts from a focus on future judgment and instead focuses on a transformation that's taken place in the life of his readers. So there, verse 8, he continues, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Right? That you once were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. This is the summary of the Christian life. This is the testimony. 
One commentator even says this is a marvelous summary of much of Ephesians. You once were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Something has changed. And as people of light, to, they are to, verse 8 continues, walk as children of the light. Walk as children of light. Four, here's, here's why you're to walk as children of light. Fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. These are the fruit of light. I mean, so it's like Paul saying, just like the apple tree produces fruit in keeping with its nature, just like a pear tree produces fruit in keeping with its nature, here Paul says, children of light produce fruit in keeping with their new nature. That fruit is not apples or pears, but it's goodness and righteousness and truth. That's the fruit of a child of the light. Therefore, Paul says, pursue these things. You ought to be people of the light. You are people of light. You ought to live like them. And this way of life, as verse 10 says, is always guided by discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. So you didn't notice that? That, that? That's the aim of the Christian. What is going to please the Lord in this circumstance, in this situation? How can I please the Lord? Which is just a positive way of saying what he said negatively at the end of chapter 4, which is don't grieve the Spirit. So, so, so if you don't want to grieve the Spirit, you discern what pleases the Lord. How do I please the Lord? Verse 11, they do not... Those children of light do not take part in unfruitful works of darkness. Again, he's, he's emphasizing this, this break between new and old, Christian and non-Christian. So according to Paul, walking as children of light not only entails the fruit of light being produced in their lives, it also excludes participation in the unfruitful works of darkness. Again, if, if you're pursuing fruit of light, you're not going to be participating in unfruitful works of the darkness. You put on this, and by putting on this, you put off this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. In fact, Paul says, not only should you not take, take part in them, but it's even shameful to talk about what they do. Right? That's the nature of the corruption that, that they're living among. It, it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in the dark. Don't partake in that. Don't talk about that. that is, that's shameful. They, they're so corrupt, Paul said, it's, even, it's, it's shameful even to talk about it, which is why partnering with them, right? Paul says it's shameful even to talk about them and and, and, and you're considering partnering with him. That, that's unfathomable, he says, for a Christian, for someone who's, who's walking as a child of the light. Don't partake in them. But instead, at the end of verse 11, notice what Paul calls them to positively. He says, don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. Paul says, don't do the deeds of darkness. Don't live your life as one who's done the darkness, but, but also expose the works of darkness. So, so what does that mean? How do you expose the unfruitful works of darkness? Notice first that, that the call is to expose them. Right? It's there in verse 11, but it's also at the end of verse 13. Paul wants his readers to expose the works of darkness, and he wants them to know that they're do, and he wants them to know that they do it by shining light. You expose darkness by shining light. Darkness is exposed by light. And that's the analogy here. And it's really simple. When, when a room's dark or a hallway's dark, your closet is dark. How do you address the darkness? How do you, how do you dispel and expose the darkness? You, you, you turn on a light. Right? Darkness and light cannot coexist. And so you expose darkness by shining light. And so this call, when Paul says expose the works of the darkness, I think primarily what Paul's saying, it's a lifestyle thing. Live as children of the light. And that will expose the foolishness and the folly of the ways of darkness. In other words, I think Paul primarily understands the act of exposing darkness as happening through Christians living as children of the light. They don't take part in the works of darkness, but rather they, they shine light 
which exposes the works of the darkness for what they are. The contrast between the life of a child of light and the life of a child of darkness is a contrast that speaks loud and clear. And that's part of the difference. There's an effect of living a different life. And so, so part of the way we expose darkness is, is we, we, we live positively as children of light. And people recognize a difference. So I think it's mainly a, a practical life-living thing. But also, with that being said, we have to recognize that exposing the works of darkness sometimes involves verbal interactions. Sometimes it requires verbal interactions. In other words, sometimes exposing the unfruitful work of darkness means clearly defining what is being done as evil. Simply calling a spade a spade. Sometimes it's right to expose works of darkness and say, that is not okay. That's bad for you. That's going to hurt you in the long run. That, that's not right. That's not helping. That's wrong. That's evil. Sometimes words say things that actions cannot. Right? Sometimes actions do speak louder than words, but sometimes words speak words that actions can't. And so I think this call to expose works of darkness is, is a balance between both of these. Children of the light must not be afraid to expose the unfruitful works of darkness by speaking out against them. And another related question from this passage that a lot of people talk about is, well, whose works of darkness are being exposed? So, so you, probably, you probably initially, your impulse is it's, it's the, the non-Christian, the sons of disobedience, the outsider, which I think that's right, but, but I also think this includes... Children of the light. So when you see a brother or sister who, who is engaged in unfruitful walks of darkness, you expose it. You say, whoa, whoa, that's not okay. I, I think that, that that's called for also. And now certainly it's, it's with the outsider, but I think, I think it also applies to those inside. I think we are called to expose the deeds of fellow Christians who happen to be pursuing unfruitful deeds of darkness. I think that's one of your membership responsibilities as a church member is to expose, right? Because we love darkness. Our sin loves darkness. And if, if it's never addressed, it's just going to hide there. Maybe you can control it for a little while, but, but it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away until light is shined into the corner. And it's brought into the light. And there's repentance, as 1 John 1 talks about. And so I think both, children of the light as children of light, expose darkness wherever it is, whether it's in the son of disobedience who's not a part of the body or one who is part of the body. It's like we're all little candles giving off light so that, that anyone we're around is affected by the light. Their darkness, their, their life of, of darkness, or their dabbling in the darkness, it's exposed. And that's the point. Light exposes darkness. And this exposure, when it, when it comes by way of shining light is the first step in this process of transformation. So look there in verse 13. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. And so exposing the deeds of darkness here is the first step in this process of living in the light. Notice the quote there in verse 13. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now again, there's lots of questions surrounding this quote. It's not directly from any Old Testament um, passage, there's some that, that it seems to follow or are similar to, but, but it's most likely that this was an early Christian hymn or song that, that he's quoting that they all would have known. So he says that this is part of what it means to be a Christian, to awake, arise from the dead, and, and, and have Christ shine on you. And so Paul's main point here of this quote seems to be that of exhortation. He's, he's just spent so much time calling Christians not to take part in unfruitful works of darkness 
but instead to expose the works of darkness. And now he does, in closing this section, he calls them to, to come out. Wake up. Leave the works of darkness. Wake up, you sleeper. That's not who you are anymore. Wake up. And when you do, in your waking up and, and coming out of the darkness, he makes a promise. Christ will shine on you. So that, I think this is how, this is how Paul's logic is working, the exhortation to live as children of light comes with a great promise that Christ himself will be with you, shining on you, aiding you in living a life of light. He's with you. You're not alone. And you feel like the darkness is, is overwhelming. Christ will shine on you as you come out of the darkness. Christ will be the one with you. And it's in that process from darkness to light that, that all people, Christians and non-Christians alike, are called to take part in. And so as Christians, right, we once were dead and now we're alive. We once were in darkness, now we're in light. We have life. God's grace has, has been manifest in our lives, and our lives ought to be characterized by a code of conduct. We have new marching orders, a new conduct. Grace has made us alive, and grace will sustain us. And so, so we pursue this code of conduct, trusting that God will be with us and that Christ will shine on us. Well, let's pray as we close.